Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. 2022 proved to be an eventful year for the Asian region and 2023 will have plenty to watch out for. So to celebrate the 200th episode of Asia Rising, we're looking at the current general happenings with two very special guests. Inaugural Executive Director of La Trobe Asia and Dean to the School of Humanities and Social Sciences, Professor Nick Bisley, welcome to you. Hi, Matt. And current Director of La Trobe Asia and Associate Professor in Politics, Beck Strating, welcome to you. Hi, Matt. Hi, Nick. Thanks to both of you for joining me today and uh, having a natter about all things Asia and what's going on at the moment. And uh, to do the heavy lifting, I sent you the topics and let you come up with what we're actually going to talk about. So uh, thanks for doing all the hard work for me. We'll see how effective it is. <laughs> all right. So the first thing I said is uh, let's discuss a topic of a significant event or trend from last year that you believe will shape regional security. Beck, we'll start with you. Uh, you chose the ongoing Russian-Ukraine conflict, which has been going on for about a year now and testing the resolve of a number of fronts. Uh, so can you tell us what has the impact been on Asia and what are the implications of this going forward? Yeah, thanks, Matt. We cannot not talk about Russia's invasion of Ukraine mm. because that is, you know, the significant event of 2022. I mean, it has global ramifications, but it also, you know, it has implications for Asian security. Sometimes I think we kind of ignore the fact that Russia belongs in Asia as well. Mm -hmm. But if we sort of think about this Russia-Ukraine conflict, I mean, the first implication is what it means for the so-called rules-based order. Now, Nick, I know you love the term rules-based order. It is really important because you have states like Australia and Japan and, and India and the United States, all of four of those countries in Asia, you know, constitute the quad, which I'm sure that we'll get back to later. They're out there and they're prosecuting this idea that a rules-based order exists and it needs to be protected, it needs to be defended. The underpinning idea here is that authoritarian states like Russia and like China are presenting or will present a threat to the rules that help countries establish order mm. uh, and that these are particularly threatened in Asia due to rising China. But of course, what we've got here with Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a violation of a very core constitutive norm of international society, which is sovereignty and territorial integrity. So there is a real concern about what Russia's invasion of Ukraine means for some of the core rules. And a lot of Asian countries are very supportive of an order that is based on sovereignty because it means that other states can't intervene in their domestic politics. But there is this kind of question about how then, if a country like Russia is able to violate that norm, what are the responsibilities of the international community and what does that then mean for, say, a country like the United States? I mean, is their focus then going to transfer to the European theatre and does that mean that they're going to pay less attention to Asia? Mm. There are ramifications or implications of a conflict like this for the Asian region. There's a host of other things that we can really talk about here. One is you've got a bigger authoritarian power that has threatened a smaller democratic 
country. That's something. Are that you going is... to name anything there, or that, <laughs> that's just massively vague? Well, you know, this is Russia and Ukraine here. This is what we see: are these comparisons that get drawn. So, yeah. if a big authoritarian power like Russia can do this to Ukraine, what lessons might a country like China draw from this? In you know, for example, whether or not it plans to hypothetically hypothetically in the future maybe plans to attack Taiwan. Mm. I would think and you know be interested to get Nick's views on this. I think that they're not like for like, like geographically they're not the same and China and Russia don't actually have exactly the same sets of interests or behaviours. But if there are lessons to be drawn, then perhaps it's one of caution. Mm. Even though Russia appears on paper to be much more powerful than the Ukraine, that the Ukraine has actually been quite resilient in the face of those attacks. There's also, you know, this issue of how the war is playing out. But I think Asia watchers like myself have been very focused on the grey zone, activities of states that fall below the threshold of war in understanding possibilities of conflict in Asia. So that's a sort of interesting comparison. And then you have this broader issue that's particularly pertinent in Asia, but also more generally around authoritarianism versus democracy and, and this idea that you've got rising powers that are not democratic and what does that mean for democratic states such as Australia? And then, you know, going back to this idea of whether or not Russia is in fact an Asian power. I think we can give it a pass. It's on the right longitude. And it's a big Asian power in the sense of it's a big source of energy and it's a big source of weaponry. Has territorial disputes with Asian countries Mm. like Japan. And is a member of all of the key regional institutions and so on and so forth. If I could add a couple of things to Beck's excellent list of, you know, why this really matters. I mean, one upside of all of this is that, you know, a little over a year ago, we were all looking at the Ukraine and, and Russia and going, is Putin going to invade? And, you know, he's massing this enormous force. And mm. Most sensible analysts, of which I'm clearly one, said <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to invade. It's this all for show. At very worst, he's going to do a kind of needle prick kind of strike. He'll go to the east, grab the bits that are already effectively under Russian control, claim victory and sovereignty over these areas and mission accomplished in the sense of it being a you know, very low risk because the costs of doing this sort of thing, the risks to a, an economy and a polity like his were huge. Mm-hmm. Of course, no, you know, he goes the full whole hog invasion. And where I think this is a helpful reminder is that countries sometimes do things that don't make sense, that mm. you sit down and tot up the costs, tot up the benefits and go, here's what they will do because they're rational actors. There are certain things that are emotional, nationalistic, honour, you know, not fully rational motivations. And Taiwan, I think, fits squarely in that bracket for Xi Jinping's China. That's to say it's something over which you may be prepared to take risks that don't just fit within a cost-benefit analysis because of the part it plays in your nationalist legitimation strategy or your complex web of domestic political interests that you sit atop. We really need to be careful around this thing because... You know, just by setting the system up in such a way that it makes it very costly for China to invade Taiwan, therefore they won't do it. It's a good reminder to everyone to say, actually, let's be careful around this thing because it's a particularly volatile set of circumstances and one that's not quite subject to the standard way of managing and controlling 
disputes. Mm. I think it's useful in that sense. <laughs> Sounds a bit grim to, to describe a, a conflict like that as, as having some utility, but I think it's a good reminder that at the international level in the game of war and peace, states don't always act rationally. Yeah. But mm. if I could tick off a few, there's warning signs that are going on. One is that China has never condemned Russia's act. Two is that it sets a precedent what Russia has done and countries in Europe, the US are looking at their reaction to Russia and the Ukraine and, and probably equating that to how would we react in similar circumstances should anything else happen. And I guess on a more um, practical level, China doesn't seem to have let up on, can I call it the flybys that they've been doing over Taiwan ever since Nancy Pelosi really visited there. Those flybys or the sorties that you're talking about there, they were occurring. They well were occurring before. before. Yeah, Pelosi. Yeah. So that's a sort of ongoing trend. And it is actually one that I would have talked about if I wasn't <laughs> going to choose Russia, Ukraine, because, you know, we are seeing across, you know, the South China Sea, East China Sea, Taiwan Straits, worrying unplanned encounters between military aircraft and an increase in the number of naval vessels that are transiting through these areas, as well as an increase in coast guard vessels, fishing vessels, survey vessels. And there is this risk that we're getting a kind of very saturated maritime area and, and whether or not those developments might also spark something is something that I know I'm keeping an eye on. Mm, okay, definitely a trend to keep an eye on. Nick, you chose the PRC's sudden ending of the COVID zero policy. So what can their handling tell us about the system in place there? There's a couple of things here. Of course, everyone knows COVID began in China in 2020 and China deals with really the first two years of the pandemic exceptionally well. It pioneers the lockdowns, the mass screenings and all of this sort of thing. But of course, the problem that the PRC faced was that the lockdown strategy is buying you time. The nature of COVID as a disease, the ease with which it's transmitted, it was always going to spread. And what appears now in hindsight to have been the case was that the PRC, and this is the interesting question, is why didn't it do what everyone else was doing? Because they'd bought themselves so much time. We know that the Chinese government, if it puts its mind to something, can throw unbelievable amounts of resources at things and really produce remarkable results in relatively short periods of time. So what was surprising is that as the lockdown extends in the PRC, it is not doing mass vaccines. It's not improving its own vaccine system. And instead, it gets to a point where the Omicron variant proves to be unable to be controlled by the traditional lockdown measures. So it's just too transmissible. No amount of lockdown is going to stop it. And then China did one of its just staggering about faces. And all of a sudden, it's just ripped the Band-Aid off. Mm. And of course, the somewhat amusing part of it was watching the Chinese propaganda machine turn 180 degrees literally overnight to going, this disease is a terrible, horrible thing. It's going to kill you. You must stay at home. You must listen to Xi Jinping and everything he says, because this is the only way we're going to be made safe to... It's wonderful. Get out, get out and around into the economy and spend and go and visit your family. And, you know, within six weeks, it's probably true that the December, January period is probably the greatest expansion of a single disease in human history. That's to mm -hmm. say that the amount of transmission of a disease from across a population has never been so big because the population is so vast in mm -hmm. the PRC. Mm -hmm. And the estimate is probably between a million and a million and a half people in the PRC have died. We don't know. Mm -hmm. That's sort of similar number to the U.S., ballpark. And of course, up until pretty recently, the PRC was always crowing about how it had 
managed COVID without having to have this many people die. This is kind of telling for a few things. One is, I think it will be one of their great policy blunders that they screwed up that period. And it's a real head scratcher as to quite why or how they didn't make better use of their time from a public health point of view. And it gets to a larger question about the PRC under Xi Jinping, and that's to say the way in which he has, you know, a sort of cult of personality around himself, as we saw at the 20th Party Congress last year, a leadership clique that's entirely loyal to him. You don't have any, and by all accounts, he doesn't have anyone who is not basically a yes man and is men around him. And you haven't got room and space for a leadership to be told, hey, this isn't working. Here's a problem. You need to fix it. And so that unraveling of the COVID situation in the PRC is illustrative of you know, a pretty brittle leadership and one that finds managing complex situations that make it look bad very, very difficult. To me, that's a really interesting tell about where the PRC is going. So since China's COVID response damaged the country economically, now that they've turned away from that approach and opened things back up, do you think that we could see a bounce back with that in 2023? In many respects, that's the $64 billion, billion question. I think the real driver behind the ripping off of the COVID band-aid for Xi Jinping's leadership was the economy. Mm. They could not keep the economy locked down like that and sustain themselves, economically speaking, and particularly the desire to drive the transformation of the Chinese economy to deal with the big problems that they've got if they've got perpetual lockdowns. So 2022 was the year where the Chinese economic growth has been its lowest since the reform and opening up mm. period of the late 1970s. So yeah, that yeah. itself is just notable right there and then. Mm. Critics of China for decades literally have been saying, aha, this is where the bubble gets burst. Here's all the long list, shopping list of problems in the PRC. The emperor has no clothes and eventually it'll all go poof. The question we have now is, is that moment here? The big problem that we're talking about a lot in China last year was a slowing economy in general and the real estate crisis in particular with, you know, millions and millions of unbuilt houses and bad debts across the board. Don't forget real estate in China is an unusually big part of the economy. 90% of Chinese, it's reported, are property owners. Mm. It's really, really, really high, particularly in an emerging economy. But perhaps most importantly is that the property sector in general has been the biggest source of revenue for local governments. If that sector collapses in on itself, that is a big deal for, you know, about a third of the Chinese economy. Yeah. So the question looking out for 2023 is, is the Chinese economy going to get back up on its feet and resume its role both as a sort of big engine of global growth and most importantly, an engine for prosperity within the PRC and be the thing that drives a confident, ambitious increasingly militarily assertive China and to do the kinds of things we are talking about before, the buzzing of the planes across the East China Sea over Taiwan, South China Sea adventurism, and on and on and on, or is a economically weakened China with a political leadership that's unsure of what to do, that's surrounded by yes men, going to be actually proven to be a weak China? What will that mean for regional security? An economically weak China could either A, be more circumspect and more cautious and withdraw a little bit and be nice to the neighbours and don't upset the apple cart approach was really how Chinese foreign policy operated until Xi Jinping. Mm. Or 
there's a version that says, actually, this is the wag the dog scenario, a weak China that's got problems. Aha, the leadership solves this with a nationalistic conflict that will rally around the flag and get everyone supportive and, and hang the costs. Mm. So that's what I'm looking for this year to see what does the Chinese economy do and what does that mean for how the PRC approaches its regional interests. The indicators are it's bouncing back quickly. Once the froth goes out of that, right, everyone's back out in the streets what will it really look like? What does the real estate sector look like? How does the banking system respond to all of that? And then in turn, what does the government do internationally? Well, if I can spin this regionally, in fact, one of the things that you are interested in is what the Belt and Road Initiative could look mm. like in the years to come. So I think that that might segue nicely yes. into that kind of interest as well. So If you weren't going to segue, yep. I was going to. In terms of thinking about 2023 and some of the developments that I'm looking for, I did choose the Belt and Road Initiative and how that is tracking because there has been a drop in Chinese spending reportedly from $60.5 billion in 2020 to $56.5 billion in 2021. So we're still talking vast sort of sums of money. But this was, you know, projected to be a trillion-dollar game-changing investment scheme that would really determine how China under Xi Jinping would try and shape regional, if not global, order. So, you know, the Belt and Road Initiative is incredibly important in clout building, I think, in the Asian region. So, you know, there is a suggestion that the Belt and Road Initiative has been sort of reformulated over the past year. There's a suggestion that maybe if the economy really tanks, that it won't have the money to be able to spend fulfilling some of the promises of the Belt and Road Initiative. And there's also been a range of you know international criticisms about the projects that have been funded within countries, the quality of those projects, whether or not local populations really needed those projects or whether they were sort of national priorities and criticisms, of course, about whether or not this is really a strategic play by Xi Jinping to increase China's foothold in ports and other strategically important areas. That concept of debt diplomacy, it's sort of spread as a meme, but it's been challenged over recent years by academics who point out that there might not always be a strategic rationale to the Belt and Road Initiative and that debt. You know, there is a lot of debt involved here and it's not all good for China, especially if it's experiencing the sorts of economic challenges that Nick pointed out before. So I guess the real question is, is the Belt and Road initiative dying? Is it being reformulated? And how is that going to affect China's influence campaigns Mm. in Asia because the economic picture is really important for states in Asia. It's part of the main problem, I think, with the United States Indo-Pacific strategy is that it doesn't have a real economic plan. I mean, it's got the, what is it, the the economic framework, IPEF, Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, and you get past the kind of motherhood statements and you find that there's not really a whole lot going on, but that what the priorities of of a lot of um, Asian states are is is really in that nation building development investment space, infrastructure space. So that's 
what I'm kind of keeping an eye out on is the politics of the Belt and Road Initiative Mm. and what it might mean for China's influence, but also what it means for sort of strategic contestation. So how other states like the United States or like Australia respond to what Beijing is doing in the region. Like we've seen over the past few years when there would be a a hint of Chinese funding in the Pacific, Australia comes along and goes, ah, and, Uh you know, uh starts um, spending cash to offset that influence. So I think it's a really important part of the picture in the coming years, that issue of how strategic competition manifests, particularly in the economic space. Yeah, and, and the infrastructure question is vital to human development also because, yep. you know, when Belt and Road first appeared, the question of who's going to fund infrastructure in Asia was and remains a real one because the scale of this is epic. And mm. you'd see figures thrown around that were literally, I mean, vast in their breadth, but just eye-watering. So at the bottom end of the rung, $9 trillion is needed. At the top end, something like 20 to $25 trillion needed mm. to make the kind of economic connectivity, you know, supports, bridges, electrical systems, internet, Wi-Fi, 5G, all that sort of stuff. That's big bickies. And what the Belt and Road kind of did was really spur focus to say, actually, China's interested in this and filling a gap, so to speak, in the market. If China backs off for whatever reason, the Americans aren't going to fill in. They've, mm. they've been highly reactive. We've been highly reactive. Mm. The ADB, the Asian Development Bank, can go so far, but not much further. World Bank, to some degree. So there is a real question mark as to how this will all be filled in. And, you know, listeners to the podcast will doubtless be aware of the events in India around Adani, the short selling of Adani. Mm. Adani's business model is built around, you know, investing in infrastructure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's a really interesting question what happens to infrastructure for the world's most populous region. Yeah. It will be for some time. Mm. And still, this is a big problem. As you said, this plan has been going on for quite a while, this Belt and Road Initiative. There's only so many bridges you can build. Countries are looking at, you know, what's happening with ports in Pakistan and going, is this something that we want to engage with? And if I could bring up somewhere like the Philippines, which under Rodrigo Duterte went all in on Belt and Road initiatives. Uh, He really liked it and embraced it, signed off on a lot of those, and those are now coming to fruition. But under President Marcos, that's going to be kind of changing. There's the feeling that there's going to be less engagement with China as a result. So you've got changes rippling throughout the region, I think, on that. And on that note, on that masterful segue... (laughs) Democracy. What's going on with democracy in the region? We're having changes. We've had uh, an election in Malaysia, the election in the Philippines, and also instances like an ongoing military coup situation. It's not even that. It's evolving uh, in Myanmar Mm -hmm. and the new criminal code in Indonesia, Mm. which is going to have implications. So, Beck. Yes. This is what I wanted to talk about in terms of broad trends in the region is what is described as the third wave of autocratization. You know, this is really the question about democratic decline and there's nothing new here. You know, over the past 15 to 20 years, there's been an observable and global decline in the quality of 
democracies. And Asia is by no means immune to that democratic backsliding. And so this is, I think, something that is quite concerning because we've talked, you know, a lot in this podcast about China and China is still a really important significant power in Asia. It is an authoritarian state. There are lots of valid concerns around things like the human rights situation in Xinjiang. But then there are also, you know, human rights issues that extend across the region. And you've pointed out a few of those. I mean, the Indonesia criminal code passed through parliament in December last year. If you read some of the changes that are going to occur under that code, if it gets implemented in three years' time, it's really quite disturbing. You know, there are things like no sex outside of marriage. Same-sex marriage is not legal in Indonesia. So, you know, that obviously has ramifications for LGBTIQ plus communities. There are bans on things like providing information around contraception or around abortion rights, so obvious concerns around rights of women. And then there are some other concerns around religious minorities and how this criminal code might impact on freedom of expression and freedom of religion. Mm. It's a very significant development in Indonesia. And, And the other one is India. There are real concerns about the Modi government's sort of suppression of civil society, freedom of expression, concerns around the sort of systematic discrimination against religious minorities within India. This is not new necessarily. There have been a lot of academics in Australia and India and elsewhere who have really sought to shine a light on what's going on in India around human rights violations. And there's been some real efforts to silence those voices, to try to suppress conversation about the human rights situation, using, for example, prosecution in politically motivated ways to try to silence civil rights activists or or academics. Oh, just not even that. There's a lot of heavy-handed soft power, mm, I've noticed, mm. when it comes to what people feel they can say about India. Yeah, you raise a really important point, and that is that if we think about regional security only through the lens of rising China, which is a challenge for a state like Australia, there's no doubt about that, then what the Australian government has been trying to do is build its relationships with other countries in the region. And there are important and valuable reasons for doing that. That is also required in the case of India and in the case of Indonesia of turning a blind eye to certain things that are going on. And when we do that, when a country like Australia sort of values positive relationships ahead of other imperatives like human rights or or like promoting democracy, then it can have some problems with how people perceive Australia's advocacy on those issues. You know, well, your security community talks about human rights in China, but it doesn't want to talk about what's going on in West Papua. It doesn't want to talk about what's going on in Kashmir. There are certain issues here around consistency when governments like Australia try to talk about democracy and human rights in Asia. There's a lot of notable things, I think, around the democracy and human rights issue in Asia. First is the active promotion of autocracy and authoritarianism by 
great powers. Countries like the United States and Australia have engaged in democracy promotion and now there's a sense in which through things like influence campaigns, states like China or Russia are trying to make the world safe for autocracy. So there's something to observe in Asia about how that's going on, the sort of Chinese soft power diplomacy going on. The second is the pandemic excuse. So the ways that countries in Asia use the pandemic as a justification for rolling back civil liberties. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now that we're kind of moving out of a, not post-pandemic, but something akin to, you know, a post-pandemic world, are those restrictions still in place once the emergency is gone? In some Asian countries, those restrictions became embedded and they have implications for civil rights and liberties. The third point I wanted to say here is that countries like Australia and the United States, particularly the United States, are experiencing some of their own decline in democratic quality. And of course, something that happened last year that I found quite disturbing, a number of people I think found quite disturbing in the United States was the Roe versus Wade decision in the US Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, yeah, that's yeah. it's kind of a symbol of where the US is headed. And it's a pretty scary one, given that, you know, when we talk about democratic backsliding, that seems like a backsliding on gender rights mm-hmm. in the United States. The problems with democracy in America are pretty significant. The Roe versus Wade decision was decided by justices all bar one um, were appointed by people who did not win the popular vote. Mm. There is an entrenched minoritarianism there that if this was going on in another country, American political scientists and American political leaders would be going, this is an outrage. And it gets to a larger issue that we sort of sometimes forget that when you're looking at security issues in particular, you've got to look at the picture in its totality, what's going on at home as well as what's going on abroad. And as Beck was saying, there's a tendency in the security sort of sphere to look at the game as a purely military game between, you know, a bunch of billiard balls being bopped around on an international stage. And you cherry pick the domestic bits that suit your interests and that's all. And I think that if you're trying to drive the strategy of a country in the current moment, you have to recognize that this game is much more complex than just who's got what guns, who's got military capacity pointed at whom and who can control the high ground or the choke points of Southeast Asia. Well, if I can bring this back around to the quad, uh, one of the selling points of that was that it was an alliance of like-minded countries that could, in theory, amongst other aims, uh, further democratic efforts in the region. So is it at least successful in this? This was part of the vision, right, that the quad would be these democratic pillars supporting regional order and providing public goods to other countries across the region. But there's some troubling dynamics in at least two of the quad countries, the United States and particularly India. I think that raises questions about you know, whether or not the quad should really promote its identity through that lens of being maritime democracies. Mm. I wanted to flag the the acronyms just sort of as a bit of a thing to watch in 23 because you've got the two newish ones, the Quad, which is not really an acronym. It's short for Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. You've got these two new things, two new groupings. The Quad, which began life as a group of self-styled maritime democracies out to advance shared agenda to push back on the influence of China in the quote-unquote Indo-Pacific. Interestingly, though, since it re-emerged in 2017, its agenda has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger, mm. and the stuff it's done has barely moved. 
unsurprisingly, during COVID said, you know, we see a big advantage in vaccine diplomacy and rolling out mass vaccination programs, which is very laudable, actually, to me, made a whole lot of sense. But of mm. course, didn't go anywhere, in part because India had this big outbreak and India is the source country of all of these cheaply produced vaccines, which were then going to be distributed through the Quad network. And the Quad has increasingly expanded what it talks about to the point where not just analysts, but even you know government representatives of Quad countries say, well, the Quad isn't really a security act thing anymore. It's a broad-ranging, minilateral form of cooperation on a whole range of issues, all of which sounds good, but none of which actually, as yet, has delivered anything meaningful at all, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether they just keep adding things onto the shopping list and actually not doing anything, and it's all a bit of geopolitical virtue signaling or whatever you want to call it, or whether they'll say, actually, we need to get on with the business of infrastructure or vaccine diplomacy or pandemic management or maritime exercises or whatever it is that they're actually going to do. Because it is a bit of a curious one that this thing has appeared to such fanfare, grown an agenda that's very, very rapid and yet not really delivered Deliver. anything at all. Yeah. Well, there is the promise of the IPMDA. There That's a great acronym. There you go. <laughs> Indo-Pacific Maritime Domain Awareness. So there's actually, as far as I can tell, not very much written down on paper <laughs> as to <laughs> what this uh, will involve exactly or who will be the beneficiaries of the domain awareness, the information that's going to help states have greater maritime domain awareness. But that's one I'll be watching mm. out for to see because that's actually a really useful and good idea. Mm. If states can coordinate and collaborate and pool their knowledge about what's happening in the world's oceans. I mean, oceans and seas are notoriously difficult to govern, notoriously difficult to understand what's going on. You know, a lot of Asian states are maritime. They rely on maritime resources for their economies, for food security, for coastal community livelihoods. So this has the potential to be a good idea for the Indo-Pacific, which is an inherently maritime regional construct, if it enables states to better govern their maritime resources and to better be able to see what's going on in their maritime domains. But I feel like there's a long way to go. It's as if they haven't really thought through, if we're going to do something, we need to resource it, structure it, roll it out, manage it, it's kind of dull from a public policy point of view, but it's, you need to do that if these things are going to work. Mm. We started this podcast by discussing Russia's invasion of the Ukraine. So if I could bring it back to that, is, is there at least unity between the Quad members on an approach to these kind of big power conflicts? Yes, there is You know, a sense in which these four countries have come together because of mutual concerns, I would argue, particularly around what rising China mm. means for the Asian region. But when Russia invades Ukraine, you've got quite a different view coming from India, a reluctance to criticise or condemn Russia in the way that some of the other states have yeah. uh, in the Quad. Because, you know, and going back to that question of Russia's role in Asia, it is a security partner of a lot of Asian states. And a lot of Asian states tend towards hedging rather than wanting to 
take a side. And one of the things that I'll be looking out for is developments around AUKUS. There's supposed to be an announcement around the first pillar of AUKUS nuclear-powered submarines. And it'll be interesting to see what the Australian government has decided to do there. And, you know, there has been perspectives expressed in Asia and also the Pacific among some people, that this is not necessarily going to contribute to regional stability, but it may in fact be a sort of destabilising force. And I think that Australia, for its part, needs to really think about its communications on AUKUS and explaining to domestic and international publics justifying, you know, why nuclear-powered submarines in particular are going to create regional stability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. AUKUS itself is a curious thing. You know, it's an agreement in the first instance, most visibly, to supply Australia with nuclear-powered submarines. But it's also this technology-sharing mm-hmm. agreement in a range of technologies like underwater drones and sea cables and things like that. But essentially what we appear to be into as a region is moving out of a period in which markets, prices, and efficiency were the primary, not the only, but the primary means through which economic decisions were made. There's now this new factor that's the era we seem to be going into is one in which markets and prices and efficiency is no longer the most important thing in deciding where things are made and how much we pay for them. There's this overlay of politics and an overlay of security concerns which are going to mean that in a whole range of areas, we'll be paying a lot more. Um, But we'll be getting them from our friends. But we'll be getting them from our friends. Mm. Um, And what this all will actually mean, we have no idea because we're right at the start of it. But, you know, we haven't seen this level of state interest in the economy and economic relations at the international level for decades. And what that looks like, how that's rebuilt, what that all means, we will begin to see. But I suspect what it's going to create is really significant divisions amongst countries, a lot of, I think, economic resentment as a result, higher costs, I think, for a lot of things, and a lot of wasted money. Because when the government says, you will make things this way, what we know happens is rorting and wildly inefficient practices is what follows, because all of a sudden you don't have market forces disciplining economic behavior. But we're in a really different economic universe, and I think it's one in which the politics is the dominant force. Thank you both very much for your time today, and we look forward to your future updates on developments over the next 200 episodes of Asia Rising. Will you invite us back for episode 400? Uh, Let me see after I edit this one. (laughs) I I might be done with it by then. (laughs) I want to be in 300. I want to be there for 300. (laughs) Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Beck. Thank you. That was Professor Nick Bisley, Dean of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University, and the former Executive Director of La Trobe Asia, along with Beck Strating, current director of La Trobe Asia and associate professor in politics at La Trobe University. And you have been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe Asia at La Trobe University. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and give feedback. You can follow us all on Twitter. Nick is at Nick Bisley. Beck is at Beck Strating. And La Trobe Asia is at La Trobe Asia. This podcast was recorded and produced at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.